The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. This will be uh, the last sermon I'll preach in this series on Genesis. Began this time in chapter 12 and up through chapter 25. So, in one sense, really just tracing out the life of Abraham. Uh, and in this chapter, Abraham dies. But the focus of the whole chapter is really on Abraham's legacy. We're going to try to understand the entire chapter as a whole, not just the death of Abraham, but his legacy in the world. After the last two presidential elections, experts uh, say that we live in a deeply divided nation. They speak of red states and blue states. If you don't know which kind you live in, just look at maps. They're available on the Internet. Does it really matter? But you are in this or that kind of state, they'll tell you. And after the last presidential election, some members of the media were willing to acknowledge, it seems to me for the first time, that religious and moral issues were at the core of the motives for many of the votes cast. Moral issues like abortion, fetal stem research, gay marriage showed up high on post-election polls in key states. Now, some experts, as I look at this, say that the division is so deep that it can never be repaired, that essentially we look at the world differently. That there are substantial worldviews so different, diametrically opposed from one another, that we can scarcely coexist in America. And some say this is a new phenomenon. However, almost 4,000 years ago, two pre-born infants shared, shared the same tiny space inside their mother's womb. They struggled together, fighting, pushing, shoving. Motion opposing motion, little knowing that their physical struggles represented forever a timeless and spiritual struggle. That struggle, in my opinion, is of far more eternal significance than any political struggle in any single nation at any moment in history. That struggle is over the existence and the purposes and promises of God himself. Now, those two infants were born and grew to be men who looked at life radically differently from one another. One would embrace and love the physical world as though it was all there is. He would live for a good bowl of soup, for an exciting hunt, for the smell of the fields early in the morning, for the love of a beautiful woman at night. He was a sinner unconcerned with a savior, and his name was Esau. The other would live a reflective life, musing on how to take the cleverest advantage of any situation handed to him. He would meditate on the promises that were made to his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham, and he would come to cherish them as unspeakably precious. He would suffer greatly as a result of his conniving cleverness to make those promises come to pass. He would wrestle against God and win... And he would limp the rest of his life because of the struggle. He was a sinner desperate for a savior and he trusted him. And his name was Jacob. Now, pre-born Jacob and pre-born Esau, inside Rebekah's small womb, struggling against each other, 
represent generations of believers and unbelievers sharing this small planet in the midst of the cosmos, trying to live life together, looking at things very differently from one another. We drive on the same roads. We shop in the same stores. For small periods of time, we stand in the same elevators. We share very small space together. We attend the same sporting events. Some of us root for the same sporting teams. And we enjoy the same good meals and good experiences in this world. But we see everything differently from one another. This, in my opinion, is the unifying story of Genesis 25. Big picture. This is what Genesis 25 is about. We are two manner of people in the King James Version of the verse on the cover of your bulletin. We are two manner of people. It says in verse 23, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated. We are two manner of people. And this was Abraham's lasting legacy. Now, as you look at Abraham's lasting legacy, he was, it was called, the father of many nations. This is, as I mentioned in Genesis 25, the final chapter of Abraham's earthly life. And he had a lasting legacy of two sorts or two kinds. There was Abraham's physical legacy. He was the father of many nations physically. He had lots of sons who themselves had even more sons, and so they became nations. He was the father of many nations. But he also had a spiritual legacy, a timeless example of a faith-filled life, a faith-filled son, Isaac, to carry on God's promises, and all of those unfulfilled promises that God had made to him. For example, in Genesis 12:3, that first one, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's an unfulfilled promise when Abraham dies here in Genesis 25. Now, ultimately, fulfilled in that latter son of Abraham Jesus Christ, as it says in Matthew 1.1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Jesus, the son of Abraham, fulfills Genesis 12.3, that through Abraham's offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Now, the significance of this chapter is how these two legacies fit together. How do Abraham's physical descendants relate to his spiritual descendants? How do they, how do they fit together? Not all of Abraham's Physical descendants cherish the promises made to Abraham, their father. Not all of Abraham's physical descendants have faith. But all of Abraham's physical descendants are blessed in this life in some way by God himself. And all of Abraham's physical descendants experience the kindness of God the Creator. And all of Abraham's physical descendants sin and stand in danger of the wrath of God. On the one hand, you have Isaac. On the other hand, you have Ishmael. On the one hand, you have Jacob. On the other hand, you have Esau. All four appearing in this chapter. On the one hand, Isaac and Jacob were sinners who knew God, who believed him, who cherished and trusted in the promises made to their father Abraham. They lived for a place in the eternal city of God. On the other hand, Ishmael and Esau were sinners who did not know God, did not trust in Him, despised the promises made to their father Abraham. They lived for earthly pleasures, earthly blessings, earthly stuff. And yet all of them were descendants of Abraham. They had to coexist in God's physical world for a while. Now let's look at the chapter and just kind of overview it so you get a, a sense of what's here. 
In verses 1 through 6, we have the account of the rest of Abraham's father, or family, sorry, Keturah and her sons. More on Keturah in a moment. But here is Keturah, another wife of Abraham and her sons. Verses 7 through 10, we have at last the death and the burial of Abraham. In verse 11, the statement of God's blessing on Isaac. In verses 12 through 18, we have God's blessings on Ishmael and how God blessed Ishmael. In verses 19 through 34, collectively, we have the birth and development of Jacob and Esau. Verse 19 through 21, Rebekah's barrenness, the story of her barrenness, and Isaac's effective prayer to God concerning that barrenness. Verse 22 and 23, Rebekah's suffering as the, as the twins within her womb were pushing and poking and prodding, and she was in some pain and wanted to know what was going on. And so God gave her the prophetic answer we've already mentioned concerning two manner of people within her. Verses 24 through 26, Jacob and Esau were born, and they are described In uh, verses 27 and 28, we see Jacob and Esau developed up to adulthood, and they are described. And then in verses 29 through 34, we have the account of what I call the most expensive bowl of stew in history. That's the entire chapter. Now, let's dig in and see if we can understand it. First, Abraham's fleshly children. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 17. Verse 5, in Genesis 17, 5, God said to Abram at that time, No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's a promise. Now, at that point, he he was not the father of a multitude of nations. But that was a prophetic word that someday he would be the father of many nations. It was a prophecy. Patriarchs of many nations are mentioned right in this chapter. Genesis 25. So this is a clear fulfillment of God's prophecy in Genesis 17. It's come to pass. It's beginning to come to pass by the time we have Genesis 24 written. And yet in the midst of it, God clearly identified which of Abraham's many sons alone was to be the child of promise. Look at verse 5. It says, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. And again in verse 11, it speaks of the, of the blessing of Isaac. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived in Beer Lahai Roy. And so there's clearly a singling out of Isaac, the child of the promise. He's the one who's going to take on his father's spiritual legacy. Now, a key biblical point essential to this sermon and to the next many that I'll be preaching in Romans 9, and that's where we're going. I preached through four chapters of Romans 1 through 4, took a break, uh, preached 5 through 8, took a long break, and now we're going back to Romans 9. Uh, and I think it seems a reasonable bridge from Genesis 25 right over to Romans 9 because the whole issue of Jacob and Esau is foundational to the argument Paul makes in Romans 9, as we'll see. And I'm not going to develop that fully today because we'll have a chance to develop it fully when we look at Romans 9. But in Romans 9, 6 through 8, Paul says this, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. I think Genesis 25 is key for seeing that. We have lots of children of Abraham in Genesis 25, but we've got the blessing on Isaac. Now, who is Keturah? In verse 1, we meet Keturah. Verse 1, it says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She's called a wife there in verse 1. First Chronicles calls her, however, a concubine. 
I don't really know what a concubine is, I have to be honest with you. I read about them in the, in the Bible, but how they're different from a wife, I don't know. But there in First Chronicles, she's called a concubine. And the sons born to Keturah, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Uh, and then the sons of Jokshan were, were listed Sheba and Dedan. It is a disturbing thought, isn't it? That Abraham had another wife after Sarah. Even more disturbing was, I thought that Isaac was a miracle baby on both sides of the equation. So it's presented to us in Romans 4. You know, Abraham, it says in Romans 4, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. You see, it's not just Sarah, but Abraham. And there Paul is really playing up the fact that God has power to give life to the dead. And he says, just as he made Abraham's dead body come alive so that he could father a child, so he'll make your dead body come up out of the grave and give you resurrection and eternal life. That's the point he's making. But both Abraham and Sarah were dead in some manner of speaking. Abraham's body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Sarah's womb, also dead. Well, how then does he father these children with Keturah after the fact? Well, interpreters, conservative interpreters, take two approaches. One is they say it wasn't after the fact. This happened earlier, but it's only being reported now. So he married Keturah while Sarah was still alive. Well, that's troubling in other ways now, isn't it? Okay? The other is that God so thoroughly and completely healed uh, his good-as-dead body that he was able to go on in a, in a rather normal way and father other children after that. But that Isaac himself is still a child of the promise, a supernatural baby, would never have been born if the Holy Spirit hadn't worked. I'm not totally satisfied with either one of those explanations, but what can you do? There is Keturah. And so we're trying to understand it. You're saying, this is what happens in this church. I come in not having any problems at all with these texts, and then I go out having deep questions. And I never even noticed that there was a difficulty here. But we need to face these things head on, even if we don't have good answers. Henry Morris put it this way, when God heals, he heals completely, restoring the injured member or diseased organ back to full soundness again. In order to father a son in his old age, Abraham's reproductive system had to be rejuvenated. The 100-year-old man became a man of 30 or 40, again, in that respect at least. Well, that's Henry Morris's explanation. That's good enough for me, I guess, at this point. But at least we say this, we have sons by Keturah. Now, who are these sons by Keturah? Well, the answer is there's six more nations, really. Six more nations. He was the father of many nations. And if you look at the names, and if you know enough of some of the scriptures of the Old Testament, you'll start to recognize some of them. Zimran, Jokshan, Medan. Oh, here's Midian, for example. Does that sound familiar? Midian? Right, there's the Midianites, from whom came Jethro, the priest of Midian, who, who took uh, Moses in when he was fleeing from Pharaoh and became Moses' father-in-law. But then later things turned sour between the Midianites and the Israelites, of course. They attacked and opposed the Israelites as they were on their way to the Promised Land. And then later formed raiding parties and swept in so fiercely and savagely that the Israelites in the Promised Land are living up in the book of Judges, living up in, in mountains and caves. And Gideon has to come rescue them. These are the Midianites. So the clear lesson is not all who are descended physically from Abraham are children of the Promise. These folks were Israel's bitter enemies. And then in the same chapter, you've got Ishmael and his sons. We've already met Ishmael in Genesis 16. But uh, remember at that time that his mother Hagar uh, was Sarah's uh, maid. And uh, she became pregnant by Abraham. And she was told that Ishmael would be, remember, a wild donkey of a man. And that his hand would be against everyone and everyone's hand would be against him. 
Remember also in Genesis 17, Abraham's prayer for Ishmael. Uh, Genesis 17, 18 through 21 says, And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers. That's Ishmael. The father of twelve rulers. And I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Genesis 17. And so the descendants of Ishmael uh, are reported here in Genesis 25. And they're also very significant in the Bible. The Ishmaelites lived in Arabia. And they moved in caravans through the desert. They were desert dwellers. It was the Ishmaelites that bought Joseph from his hate-filled brothers and carried him down to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar. Ishmaelites did that. If you look at the names, Nebaioth, Kedar, Tema, Dedan, they're all mentioned later in Isaiah. You probably don't know that, but it's kind of fun to get a concordance and look. These folks show up later in Isaiah's prophecy. However, like sons of Keturah, they were usually seen as enemies of God. Enemies of God's people, with one key exception that I'll mention at the end of the message. And then, thirdly, you have in this chapter Esau. Esau himself, one of the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, but ultimately he became the paradigm example of a faithless unbeliever, a godless man. And so all of these folks in this chapter that I'm mentioning here are physically descended from Abraham and yet despise the promises that God made to Abraham. Keturah's sons, Ishmael's sons, Esau, they descended physically from Abraham. They were children according to the flesh, but they're examples of pagan nations, of unbelievers. Romans 9, 8, remember the key lesson. It is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. All right, now let's talk for a moment about Abraham's spiritual children. We've looked at his children according to the flesh. What about his spiritual children? Well, they're called children of the promise. They represent the elect the saved, the believers, the Lord's people, Christ's sheep. There's a lot of different ways of speaking of them. Galatians 3, child of the slave woman versus the child of the free woman. That's the language used there. Isaac is the example here, uh, first, of one of Abraham's spiritual children. He is a faith-filled heir of the promises, and he's blessed by the Lord. He's the miracle son. He's the paradigm of a child born not by the flesh but by the spirit. He is the heir of all of Abraham's possessions. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, verse 6, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. So the sons of the concubines are not left out, um, but they are not heirs, and they don't get the blessings that Isaac gets. Uh, More significantly, much more significantly, Isaac is the heir of the promises God made to Abraham. He's his uh, spiritual heir, most of which had uh, still not been fulfilled. It says in Romans 4.13, Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Isn't that incredible? Think about that. Heir of the world. The meek will inherit the earth, Jesus said. And so in Romans 4.13, Abraham's spiritual descendants, their heir of the world, and Isaac represented that. Isaac was also uh, especially an inheritor of a lifestyle of faith. A way of living 
that was different than those around him. A lifestyle of faith, trusting in God and turning to God to help solve uh, life's problems. Look, for example, at verse 21. It says there, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca became pregnant. So, by the way, this is much superior to what Abraham did when Sarah was barren. You remember she gave the advice, why don't you go sleep with uh, Hagar. What does Isaac do? He said, let's, no, let's turn this to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray about this. And how much superior is that? And God blessed in an amazing way. Isaac's prayer then displays the characteristic of the children of God. By faith, looking up to God, asking him to meet life's challenges. In prayer, trusting. Not with self-confident action. Or with sinful response. We also see it in Rebecca's prayer. She also is a faith-filled, godly woman. And so when she's troubled by the jostling that's going on in her womb, what does she do but turn to God in prayer? And she wants to know what's going on. Verse 22, the babies jostled each other within her. And she asked, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. So this is a lifestyle of faith, a way of addressing the problems of this world by faith. Now, especially though, Isaac was heir of an outlook on this world which is based in faith. We just see this world and the next one differently than people who have no faith. We see sunrises and sunsets and meals and warmth and family. We see all of those things differently because of our faith. And especially because we know this world, this physical world, is not all there is. There's something beyond it. And Isaac was an heir of that way of looking at the world. And it's talked about in Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. And there in Hebrews 11, verse 9 and following, it says, By faith Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose builder and maker is God. <laughs> All these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. But they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers in this world. That's just a way of looking at the world that we have as believers. This is not our home. We're just passing through. And the earthly blessings and comforts we get along the way are not the ultimate end of our soul. They come and go. But our soul lasts forever in Christ. And so Isaac lived that way of looking. For all of this, Isaac was said to be blessed by the Lord. Verse 11, as I mentioned. God blessed his son Isaac with that outlook of faith. We see it also in Jacob... Now, we're not going to be tracing out the life of Jacob at this point. We're, we're jumping off the Genesis train before we go on with Jacob. That's a long story that goes right to the end of the, of the book. And God willing, maybe in the future, we'll come back and look at Jacob. But you know his story. You're familiar with him and how he lived this. He was a conniver. I mean, he really was. He was a con artist. But he was also blessed by the Lord. Just like Isaac, Jacob would be heir of the same lifestyle of faith and of the promises made to Abraham. Unlike Isaac, Jacob was a conniver and a con artist who tried to use his own cleverness to accomplish God's purposes. But still, he cherished the promises of his father, uh, Abraham, and of God. And he cherished and trusted in those promises and lived accordingly. All right, now, we've got two manner of people then. Do you see it? Physical descendants and then the spiritual ones. 
What is common between the two? John F. Kennedy, in his commencement address at American University, uh, June 10th, 1963, this was the height of the Cold War, just eight months removed from the Cuban Missile Crisis, a time when American students were hiding under their desks uh, regularly in missile drills, uh, really a kind of a terrifying time in which it was really easy to forget that Russians were really human beings just like us. And John F. Kennedy preached this, this uh, address, commencement address, and he said this. In the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. And we are all mortal. Well, that's what I'm getting at here. What do we share in common with the Ishmaels and the Esau's that we live with every day? Well, Abraham's spiritual children, fleshly children, share some common experiences. Both experience physical birth, obviously. They're born physically, and Jacob and Esau, sharing that same little womb, pretty soon are going to have to experience the stabbing, brilliant light that hits the eyes first. You wonder what that must be like for an infant. The first vision of light, the no longer muffled sounds, the first experience of physical pain, perhaps, or at least at that level, breathing. They went through it together. And those experience, uh, experiences symbolize their physical life. They have bodily lives with physical needs, air and water and food and warmth, protection, love, parenting, education. These would be common. Secondly, both would face physical death. Both with physical death. At the end of the other end of their lifespan, lifespan waits the specter of death for everyone. Most obviously in this chapter is Abraham's death. Abraham dies right in this chapter. Look at verse 7 and 8. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Now this is really striking. Frankly, could have been a whole sermon into itself. Abraham was called God's friend. He walked with God. He was faithful to God. He loved God. He cherished God. And God loved him. And yet he died. He died physically. For the wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 6.23. And Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man to die once, and after that to face judgment. That is our lot. Even Abraham had to go through it. No one is exempt from the humiliation and suffering of death. So we've been visiting nursing homes and hospitals. I've spoken to some of those I go visiting with, and we talk about this. I say, well, I always remember as I'm walking through these halls, I'm heading towards something like this, probably, if the Lord doesn't take me in my young age. And it's humbling. We're all heading there. That's where we're going. Happen to Abraham, it'll happen to us. All of us share that. Now, Abraham seems to have been let out easily. He lived, it says, a good full life and died full of years and was gathered to his people. These are kind of comforting words, but he died nonetheless. Remember that it says in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so it's a cherished and precious thing, even if they die violently as martyrs. It's still precious in God's sight. And both Isaac and Ishmael shared the experience of standing over their dead father's body and looking down at this patriarch, dead. What must have been going through their minds? You know, it's a scary thing when you bury your father. You know, you're the next in line. The generation is removed, and now responsibility is yours. 
And so Isaac took on the responsibility of being kind of the head, patriarchal head of God's redemptive community, his covenant community. He, he was next in line, and it must have been a striking thing. Both Isaac and Ishmael shared that experience. Death comes to everybody, believer and unbeliever alike. Thirdly, both uh, enjoy earthly blessings. God loves all human beings in some ways. He loves all human beings in some general ways. And when I speak this way, I speak of the doctrine of common grace blessings. These are blessings given to people who never acknowledge God for those blessings, never give thanks to him, don't even know he's giving them to them, but he gives them nonetheless. And so Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect when it comes to loving your enemies. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the sunrise and the rain, examples of common grace blessings that God gives to everybody regardless of their spiritual standing. God loves people in this way. Your five senses are saturated every day with the goodness of God. Are they not? We should never forget that. The rich flavor of roasted meat, that's what they loved back then. The sweet fragrance of a rose. The laughter of children playing. The warmth of the sun on your face. Softness of a warm blanket. The joy of seeing your wife smile. Or feeling your father's strong hug when you're a little child. The wonder of a line of marching ants carrying something, just as long as it's not part of your house. That's not so much. But even that's kind of amazing and wonderful in a different way. Call the exterminator, but uh, just an amazing thing. We all get to watch it. Or the majesty of a soaring eagle riding on a thermal and never flapping its wings. I find that amazing, just to watch it. And God puts that display on for everybody. Everybody can look at it. The memory of the funny things your children said and did when they were little, or are still saying and doing now. And the happy anticipation of good times with friends. God lavishes earthly blessings on the elect and non-elect alike, on the righteous and unrighteous alike, on the believer and unbeliever alike. Fourth, both experience earthly pain Both experience earthly pain and suffering. Both elect and non-elect have to bury loved ones and grieve their loss, as Isaac and Ishmael did. Both the elect and non-elect have to struggle with family conflict, as Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau all experienced. Both elect and non-elect have physical illnesses, even grievous physical illnesses, bodily weariness and fatigue. Both elect and non-elect have great disappointments and plans that go awry. So you don't get what you want. And fifth, both are sinful and in need of a Savior. Both the elect and non-elect are sinful and in need of a Savior. Esau was a a sinner. He had very little interest in spiritual things, seemingly no walk with God whatsoever. He was what some would call a good old boy who liked a good hunt. He liked a bowl of stew. He liked the smell of the field. None of those things are wrong because Isaac liked them too. He enjoyed the game that his son brought back. But Esau, he had pride and anger and lust and laziness and selfishness and covetousness. He twisted the truth and exaggerated and slandered his neighbors and enjoyed gossip. And more than anything, he lived a life independent from God. Jacob was a sinner. He cold-heartedly took advantage of his brother's hunger... And swindled his brother out of his birthright. Later, he would cold-heartedly take advantage of his father's blindness 
and swindle his brother out of his um, blessing. Jacob saw the value of the promises of God, but he sinfully sought to bring them about by his own conniving, lying ways. And like Esau, his heart was sinful as are all human hearts. He had pride and anger and lust and laziness and selfishness and like gossip and slander, twisted the truth and needed a savior. Most common spiritual connection between the elect and non-elect is this. Neither one has any claim on the thrice holy God for anything. We don't deserve a thing except wrath. That is common between us. As it is written in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And it says in another place, in Romans eleven thirty two, 32, God has bound all men over to disobedience in order that he, he may have mercy on them all. What does that mean? No one will be standing on judgment, saying, judgment day saying, I made it to heaven my way. No, no, no. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what's going to happen. So what is different between the two? Well, God's electing purpose and the lifestyle of faith that comes as a result of that. God's electing purpose, you know, it says before the twins were born. Look at Romans 9. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. Romans 9, verse 10. It says, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, 10 through 13. And note the key phrase there, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Like I said, we'll have more time to get into that shortly in Romans 9. Paul's proof is that God's statement to Rebecca happened before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. It was not based on their history or track record, but based on God's purpose and election. In the end, that is the ultimate difference between Jacob and Esau. Not because Jacob had something that God couldn't have given to Esau. Secondly, though, we do see a clear distinction, and it is highlighted in Genesis 25 in the way that each of them lived. And frankly, in the way each of them believed. Look again at the most expensive bowl of stew in history. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. How'd you like to be named after stew? I mean, that's really striking. When you're named after stew, it's pretty bad. That's the big achievement of your life, that you really like red stew, or at least that you traded your birthright for it. Verse 31, Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, said Esau. What good is a birthright to me? Talk about tyranny of the urgent, you know? I seriously doubt that there was not enough fat stored up in his body to make it through that experience of hunger. But all he knew is his stomach was growling and he needed to eat something. And the birthright meant nothing to him. <laughs> but Jacob persisted. Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. So he got some bread in addition, so that's good. Actually, Jeremy and I have talked a lot about whether the stew is even any good or not. It would be just like the devil to sell your birthright for stew that wasn't even very good. You know? It's a debate back and forth. Some thought, I think it's really, really good. That's kind of the devil's way, so you get enticed into more. I think it probably wasn't. That's my guess. I don't know what kind of a cook Jacob was. But does it really matter? 
All we know is that he looked on the stew as more valuable than the birthright. And it says, he ate and drank and got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. That is huge. It's huge. The birthright represented a connection with the promises of God, with Abraham and Isaac, with all that God had said he was going to do, with those promises that were as yet unfulfilled. And it says, the Hebrew there, despised, means thought little of, blew off. It was nothing to him, lightweight, appraised it, weighed it, and threw it, threw it out. He despised it. And it says in 1 Samuel 2.30, But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But whoever despises me, same Hebrew word, will be disdained. You honor God, consider him weighty and worth something. You will be honored. But if, on the other hand, you despise him, and that's what it was. The birthright was God. It was his promises, and he despised it. That's why the text highlights, so Esau despised his birthright. It's big what he did. All Esau cared about was his stomach. He lived a godless, faithless life. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17 says this. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Now, Jacob was a man of faith in this one regard. He cherished and valued and yearned for the fulfillment of the promises of God. His sinfulness came in, as I've mentioned, in how he went about trying by his own strength to fulfill them. Esau cared nothing for the promises made to Abraham and Isaac. The basic disposition of soul that differed from Jacob and Esau was faith. That was the difference. Now, key lesson from all of this, your earthly father does not determine your eternal destiny. It's not biological, it's spiritual. Not those who are born, but those who are born again. It's not a physical lineage, but a spiritual one that we're talking about here. Not all Abraham's physical descendants are accepted by God. This is the very issue that Paul's going to wrestle with in Romans 9 through 11. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're going to heaven. He's going to deal with that. That's the topic of Romans 9 through 11. We'll get to that, God willing, next week. So not all of Abraham's physical descendants are accepted by God. Conversely, though, not all of Ishmael's and Esau's descendants are rejected by God. Isn't that marvelous? Look this one up later, but listen. Isaiah 42, 10 through 12. I love this. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and all who live in them. Let the desert... Uh Uh-oh, perk up at that one. Let the desert and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout for the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. Kedar, Selah, who are they? Well, you know, Kedar was Ishmael's secondborn. Selah was a city in Edom, an Edomite place. Descendants of Esau. Isaiah is prophesying a time when there will be some from Kedar and some from Esau praising God from the heart. He says it again later in Isaiah 60, verse 7. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you, speaking to the Lord. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar and I will adorn my glorious temple. 
You say, what does that mean, the rams of Nebaioth? Well, Nebaioth is Ishmael's firstborn. Look right here in Genesis 25. He's Ishmael's firstborn. Someday, some descendants of Nebaioth are going to be praising God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, praising Him from their hearts. And, and, and someday, they will adorn God's glorious temple. Therefore, summing up, first essential issue, God's purpose and election. As we will see in Romans 9. The secondary essential issue, hearing God's promises with faith. But the overarching issue is God's glory in the salvation of elect from every nation. As it says in Romans or in Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Through faith in Jesus Christ, in the blood that He shed on the cross, there will be people from every tribe and language and people and nation, including descendants of Ishmael and descendants of Esau, Standing before God, praising Him for salvation. Amen. And so therefore, it's not who your physical father is. It's not being born in the right family. It's being born again into the family of God. Now what application can we take from this? Well, first, accept this. Two manners of people live in this world. Two manners of people live in this world. Don't expect all the red states to get blue or all the blue states to get red or whatever it is. It's... Two manners of people are going to live in this world. The saved and the unsaved, the elect and the non-elect. It's the way it is. Secondly, understand what we share in common with people around us who are unsaved. We share all the joys and sorrows of physical life on earth, from birth to death and everything in between. Third, expect problems from living in a mixed world. Expect problems. Don't be shocked or surprised when people who are not Christians have interesting worldviews that are different from yours and expect problems from that. Humbly accept this simple fact. Both elect and non-elect share the same wicked and evil heart and, in, and are desperately in need of a Savior. Where then is boasting, brothers and sisters in Christ? There is none. Humbly acknowledge that in some significant way some unsaved people may excel us in some interesting and key virtues. There could be some Hindus that are more generous to the poor than we are. There could be some Muslims that are more zealous and willing to die for their faith than we are. There could be some atheists that are more intellectually acute and hardworking than we are. But let me tell you something. Love for the poor and generosity to them, zeal for the faith and willingness to die for it, and intellectual sharpness and hard work do not save your soul. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ alone saves souls. We are surrounded by Esau's every day. Grieve for them. Grieve for them. As Paul does in Philippians 3, verse 18, he says, For as I often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Grieve for them. Paul says, I say it with tears. He'll say it in Romans 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. And know this, that God has the power through the gospel of Jesus Christ to save even the most wretched-looking Esau-like person. You don't know who the elect and non-elect are. You just don't. They don't wear E's on their forehead. I've never seen that. I don't know who they are. I do know that God can save a wretchedly Esau-living person. He's done it again and again and again. And so this gives us tremendous hope in evangelism. It doesn't matter how entrapped in an Esau-like lifestyle they are, how enslaved to some sin they are. Jesus can free them. He can liberate them. Resolve not to live your life like Esau, as though this world is all there is. Don't build your life on a sandy foundation which can, like Job, get swept away in a day. Because everything physical can be taken away, as Job experienced. Physical, earthly blessings are blessings from God, but he can take them away or give them as he chooses and not be any less loving to any of us. And I include in that physical health, loved ones that are still alive and around us and blessing us every day, material possessions, jobs, all that stuff is fair game. God owns it all. Don't live for those things as though they were all there is in this world. Make instead the promises of God through Christ the center of your being. And finally, hunger and thirst for the day when Jesus will clean it all up and there will no longer be in his kingdom two manner of people. Listen to the prophecy he gives us plainly in Matthew 13, 41 through 43. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all those who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let them hear. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.